thank you for the invitation. It's been a great workshop so far. Um, my background is in uh, political geography, uh, particularly thinking about security uh, and an interest I've developed over the last few years in uh, the shift towards viewing health issues, especially supposedly global health issues, uh, in terms of security or through a security prism. Uh, and the big question is what kind of security issue um, and what are the implications of thinking about things in this way. So I think one of the most interesting and most influential resources for thinking about this has been uh, Michel Foucault's lecture series on security territory population first given in 1978, which has been uh, translated into English and published uh, in, the last, uh, in 2007. Um, and it's given rise to another kind of wave of interest in governmentality, especially in relation to uh, questions of security, of globalization. Um, and in this lecture course, he, he connects his idea of security, particularly with the idea of governmentality uh, and <coughs> the rise of liberalism. Uh, and in the subsequent lecture course, both of biopolitics, given the year after, um, he talks about the shift to neoliberalism. And I find this quite a useful resource for thinking about this, these kind of issues. So in security territory population, in the famous governmentality lecture, which has been uh, available in English for, for many years, um, he says governmentality is an ensemble of institutions, procedures, analyses, and reflections, calculations, and tactics that has population as its main target and apparatuses of security as its essential mechanism. Now, that may be fairly jargonistic and requiring all kinds of translation and decoding, but um, Foucault's arguing, focusing particularly on the 18th century, a shift in practices of government from uh, a logic of sovereignty, which is about control of territory towards the management of population. Uh, and especially processes of circulation. So that, that's been a very interesting theme in a number of the, uh, the papers that we've heard, I think, over the last couple of days. Um, well, his term apparatuses, uh, in an interview in 1977, he said, I understand by the term apparatus a sort of, shall we say, I guess a conceptual precision, uh, kind of formation which has as its major function at a given historical moment that of responding to an urgent need. Now, the apparatuses of security, he, he says, uh, are particularly concerned with these problems of circulation, and he's trying to diagnose a kind of generic level of uh, thinking about government, what it means to govern, which appears in relation to lots of different phenomena in the 18th century, whether it's uh, town planning, crime control, uh, management of diseases and epidemics, that uh, across these, uh, and here he's actually talking about town planning, but French town planning in the 18th century, but it, it's a kind of phrase that is, is characteristic of governmentality uh, and this um, his idea of security that uh, in other words it was a manager of or, uh, it was a matter of organizing circulation eliminating its dangerous elements making a division between good and bad circulation maximizing the good circulation by diminishing the bad and this is a, a passage that a lot of authors in um, for example international relations have discovered looking at the globalization and security agenda, but uh, one of the great things, kind of meeting with historians, uh, <laughs> talking to historians is always being reminded that this is, you know, maybe not necessarily characteristic even of this particular period, and certainly the, the kind of neophile discussion of globalization as a new thing from the 1980s, the 1990s, so on onwards. Uh, this is something that we've seen again and again, lots of different places and times. 
So I'm interested in thinking about this connection between um, HIV AIDS and responses to HIV AIDS, not just in terms of liberalism, but, but neoliberalism. Uh, Colleen Omanik has called HIV AIDS globalization's pandemic because it emerged at a time of, uh, it, it was recognized in the US uh, and it uh, accelerated and highly affected society, sub-Saharan Africa, particularly at a time of structural adjustment. So there's a coincidence here at least and that um, part of the, the politics of responding to HIV AIDS, certainly internationally and, and especially in places like the US has been um, bound up with a, a critique of, of neoliberalism, the downsizing of the state, of public health and welfare. But at the same time, we've seen these kind of political economic shifts. Um, disease has been reintroduced as a kind of global issue in terms of discourses of security, um, which is perhaps quite characteristic of this, this neoliberal way of, of governing. It might be suggested. Uh, so on the one hand, infectious diseases by many key actors have increasingly been regarded as a security issue in terms of a global perspective. HIV AIDS has also been politicized in, in relation to uh, neoliberal programs via things like property rights and the controversy about access to antiretroviral treatment. Intellectual property rights of the late 1990s is uh, absolutely characteristic of that. But this has produced a UN commitment in 2005 to um, universal access to services for prevention, treatment and care for HIV. The goal was by 2010. Um, that's, you know, the progress is often cited in lots of different ways. Um, that obviously hasn't been reached, but the UN, I think, around this weekend is in the process of adopting a, a goal of reaching 15 million people with, with treatment by um, access to services for treatment, prevention and care by 2015. So we've got this kind of universalistic commitment, at least in terms of HIV AIDS action policy making uh, at the global level, which is somewhat coming into question as a result of financial crisis and the kind of widely observed crisis of global health, as it's sometimes termed, where uh, responding to HIV AIDS implies increasing resources and spending, um, but we see budgets flatlining or even declining. And this is being debated in the UK right now. So the, the question of where the, the global response, where national response is had in a, a time of austerity is very much on the agenda. Okay, so back to um, 78, Foucault's security territory population. Um, he, he identifies, again, this kind of generic phenomenon that becomes a concern for people thinking about practices of government. Um, a phenomenon of sudden worsening acceleration and increase, in this case of a disease, that can be identified that do not fall within the general category of epidemic, but are such that it's spread at a particular time and place carries the risk through contagion, obviously, of multiplying cases that multiply other cases in an unstoppable tendency or gradient. Now, I think we can maybe kind of slightly take issue with whether he's talking about the difference between endemic and epidemic here, but this idea of crisis, I think, is, is very relevant. And as he says, the uh, crisis is this phenomenon of sudden circular bolting that can only be checked by a higher natural mechanism uh, or by an artificial mechanism in governmental thought of the time. So if we kind of switch registers a little bit and look at this um, chart from the Health Protection Agency on the UK's HIV epidemic uh, from the beginning of HIV in the UK, the beginning of the 1980s, 
we can, at least at this level, pick out these moments that became treated, experienced, and governed in crisis terms, the, uh, the initial phase responding to HOV. And then a process um, which Victoria Berridge describes as the normalization of HIV AIDS uh, after that initial kind of crisis response by the end of the 1980s. So the red line is diagnosis of HIV, um, the blue line is AIDS diagnosis, and the yellow line is deaths. Um, the next point we might note is the fall off in AIDS diagnosis and deaths following the introduction of combination therapy in the mid 1990s. And then the uh, period that I really want to kind of focus on is this uh, increase in diagnosis, rapid increase in diagnosis from um, the end of the 1990s. And again, this return to an idea of crisis, but, but what kind of crisis, for whom, how should uh, the response be constructed? So um, Victoria Burridge's um, kind of landmark study of the response to HIV in Britain in the uh, 1980s especially um, traces these early stages of initial fear, anxiety, uh, the emergence of some kind of reactionary, very racialized responses. But what she documents is the formation of this elite kind of consensus between policymakers, uh, clinicians, and other kind of health experts, merging with rights activism, kind of bottom-up rights activism, uh, around a consensus that there would be no mandatory testing, and it's not going to be a notifiable disease, there'll be no isolation, no deportation, um, and the goal is to encourage behavior change among people. And she argues this is very much informed by an understanding of public health history in the UK, especially the failure of discriminatory or punitive measures against venereal diseases in the late 19th century, early 20th century. Okay, so things starting to change at the end of uh, the 90s, uh, shown here in another chart, Health Protection Agency chart, with an increasing number of diagnoses coming uh, in the category recorded as, as black African. So we see an increase, but, but what, what makes it a crisis? In what sense a crisis? Okay, so we've seen a couple of, we've seen a few slides already of the kind of visual culture of infectious diseases, the kind of popular culture of infectious diseases. Um, this is a cartoon from, or an illustration, a cartoon I guess from a, uh, an article in the Telegraph online, 2004. Uh, about Britain's AIDS epidemic, saying um, that it's avoidable and uh, that it's essentially coming from outside. Okay, death at the border, a very common, well-known image. So this gets picked up um, by kind of a variety of actors certain, from a certain part of the political spectrum. Just to kind of link back to the literature on um, governmentality and biopolitics, another influential author who's kind of critiqued uh, Foucault and his idea of a shift away from the importance of sovereign power towards managerial uh, governmental tactics. Uh, Agamben suggests that sovereignty, the sovereign power of the state to deprive people of life, to exclude them or to abandon them, is, is always the uh, foundation of uh, the modern political order. And Agamben also writes that uh, one of the essential characteristics of modern biopolitics is its constant need to 
redefine the threshold in life that distinguishes and separates what is inside from outside. And again, this is a kind of dynamic that's very well known to um, all of us, but Agamemnon's work has been quite suggested for a number of geographers who've connected this very clearly with kind of special dynamics, particularly imaginative geographies, but also the material organization of space. So this, um, these kind of developments start to surface in, in press reporting in the late 1990s, and there are all of those issues of mobility, disease, and, and race that we've been talking about, connected with anxieties about the use of the welfare state, the NHS by outsiders, which also go back through the, uh, the 20th century. And there are a number of strands coming through, and this, this slide just kind of enumerates them, and I, I guess they'll be kind of familiar either um, directly to people or uh, as indicative of things that we've seen in a number of the other examples. So it's about unentitled people, it's uh, those from outside, people who are illegal or illicit. Um, there's a concern about health workers who are being rec recruited internationally into the NHS, uh, and so on and so forth. Okay, let's skip that one. Um, so I've, in a previous paper, I've kind of linked this way of looking at things with um, William Walter's idea that I quite like uh, that he terms domo politics, drawing on the, the term domo, domus in terms of home, um, but also domo in terms of to, do not, to dominate. Uh, and he uses this term to kind of talk about the, the homeland security state that is concerned with protecting uh, the warm hearth of the home and the family from the threatening outside. And as, as he uh, writes, Domo politics implies a reconfiguring of the relations between citizenship, state, and territory through a fateful conjunction of homeland and security. Rationalizes a series of security measures in the name of a particular conception of home. So Walters you know, identifies this particularly in the UK, particularly in relation to the question of asylum um, from around 2000 onwards. Okay, here's a slightly different chart. Again, showing... Um, Diagnoses by exposure category, and um, you know the key point, the, the thing which is politicised, or which seems to give rise to this politicisation, is this uh, not just this rise, but the crossover where diagnoses of uh, transmission through heterosexual contact overtake the transmission between uh, men who have sex with men, and the association of this with migration uh, and asylum. So, in the words of one commentator, um, it's the foreigners we have to focus on. This is a piece of press commentary. Uh, and I've systematically reviewed press coverage of uh, HIV and AIDS in this period, and it's, uh, there, is a, there is a discourse, I think, which we can identify, which is constructed in, in these terms, which again will be very kind of familiar to you all uh, in lots of different ways and also connected with an imaginative geography, which is generalizing. It's about the, the outside, uh, the danger zones, um, but also a, a discourse about victims, sufferers, people in places who are afflicted, riddled, ridden, ridden or rife with HIV AIDS. So the return of this pre-modern kind of biblical vocabulary um, after more than a decade of efforts to kind of destigmatize HIV AIDS, to normalize it, the, the return of this, this very stigmatizing language. So if we kind of track it month by month, it goes like that, I think. 
about 350 articles. Um, and it, if we kind of put the two graphs together, <laughs> I don't want to imply that there's too much of a kind of deterministic relationship here because it, it obviously depends on who does what, how, people, how things are defined, how things are prioritized, how they're framed. But um, the, the epidemic curves, you know, seems to be much by a kind of issue cycle, at least at, at, a, at a media level. The precise kind of formulations that are in, especially editorials are like these. I'm, I'm not going to read these out, but um, you get it. <laughs> There's this kind of war language, this explicit linking with terrorism, <coughs> the, the threat to life, you know, a, a biopolitical anxiety, the, the threat to life as such, um, you know, that Britain as a nation is exposed. It's not just about a specific disease or problem. Oh, Lurgy? Uh, to colloquialism meaning infectious disease of some kind or other often applied to flu I think but it's just the kind of means I've, I've got something infectious nasty, nasty. Lurgy yeah Lurgy meets terrorism yeah um, the kind of ideal ideal threat I've no, these are from national newspapers, mainly from editorials. I kind of removed the, uh, removed the author and publication details to protect the guilty, <laughs> as it were. But not exclusively. The more lurid language appears in the tabloids, but also in certain broadsheets. So there's a kind of demonology here, which, you know, right down to the very semantic level of how, we, how disease is talked about, I think. Um, this kind of anxiety and dread crops up again and again. You know, we will get it from them. This is how it happens. Just as the holes fiend, a fiend on holiday. <laughs> Even fiends take holidays. But, uh, you know, fiend is a word that is in the British kind of press is associated with uh, paedophiles, rapists, you know, kinds of manic... Criminality. So, but this is a, a case of a, of a holiday camp where the, um, six women were uh, infected with HIV by um, somebody from outside the UK. That became a the kind of a, a, an object of fascination. You know, it's the, the kind of ideal case that dramatises the kind of national predicament that they're they're trying to um, frame and to to communicate uh, more and more and more. Okay, so a bit more towards what to do about it. Um, what is the specific nature of the problem? Okay, so those claiming asylum must be screened for links to terrorism, but it's clear that um, there's also a health risk unless they're screened for diseases as well. So, uh, what, you know, one of the reasons for removing the publication detail is just kind of the argument that this is a discourse. You know, this isn't certain, just a commentator or one newspaper here or there, that there's this kind of underpinning framework of ideas and, and statements that reactivates... Uh, that uh, kind of pre-modern but also uh, racist and um, kind of colonial way of talking about, thinking about the world. So what, are, what is actually being proposed? Well, again, kind of measures that are familiar to all detention, maybe holding camps, as they're described, screening, the, the tests that will halt the AIDS tide uh, in one headline. It should be compulsory and mandatory refusal of entry on a positive test. Links made with 
white settler colonies, US, Australia, Canada, and reported at the time New Zealand was also considering this. But there's also a counter response, especially from those kind of institutions that were uh, part of the response to HIV in the 1980s. Uh, so uh, a, whole, a whole network of actors, of, of charities, medical groups, uh, other journalists on other newspapers, uh, and some reports around this time that really put um, an alternative view. So this generated debate. Uh, the government announced it was going to conduct a review into imported infections. And there were various kind of briefings that uh, screening, the government was considering introducing mandatory screening, for example, for asylum seekers. So if we just go back to the graph for a second, um, there is one kind of right wing think tank report, very influential, Brownstone, in the summer of 2003. The government quite soon afterwards said, okay, we're going to have this review, and the fresh reporting kind of dropped off. And then it, um, you know, after a few months, came back again. The, the, the story peaked again when the government wasn't coming, actually coming out with these kind of policy measures. Reports of opposition from within the civil service on the grounds of cost and complexity, we don't really want to do it, it's pricey, is it going to work anyway? Um, and reports of divisions within the cabinet, concerns about the discriminatory implications of these kind of measures, the potential impact on foreign relations, um, connections with countries, especially in sub-Saharan Africa. So the outcomes. Um, well, no policy of detention, of screening on health grounds, no mandatory screening, no denial of entry based on HIV status. What did happen was that access to treatment was made conditional on immigration status. Um, so while HIV testing and counselling remained free to all regardless of immigration status, and while free treatment that is immediately necessary for serious infectious diseases was free to all, um, treatment for HIV, so antiretroviral therapy uh, was excluded from people who are not ordinarily resident in the UK. So uh, visa overstayers, asylum failed asylum seekers, uh, and undocumented migrants. So again, there's a kind of response to this, uh, these announcements um, from within uh, public health, from within the HIV sector, uh, and the critique of this, this policy of having an, an exclusion from access to treatment at the time when the UK is internationally backing this move towards universal access and the, the kind of universal aspirations of global HIV AIDS relief. That uh, the kind of problems identified at all sorts of levels about you know, failing to provide care to patients in need, the global commitment, uh, the public health imperative of maximizing treatment coverage so as to prevent um, onward transmission as much as possible. And the fact that uh, denying people treatment and to the point where they could only get free treatment in an accident in an emergency ward if they, they presented with an immediately life-threatening condition would um, lead to delayed presentation and require actually much more t costly treatment for uh, opportunistic infections and um, uh, AIDS-defining illnesses rather than preventing early. Okay, so justifying its position, the Department of Health stated uh, in response to, to a report uh, critical of this policy, uh, a balance has to be struck between the government's public health responsibilities and those of ensuring that the NHS is no longer seen as a global health service. 
uh, and this is a kind of key rhetorical point that emerges in this period that comes out from the press and from certain parts of the Conservative Party. It's a national health service. It's not an international health service. It can't be a global health service. It's not for everybody, um, which is picked up by the government. Um, again, looking at a somewhat wider picture than just that of HIV treatment provision. So sending a signal that uh, you can't just come to the UK, claim asylum and get HIV treatment and expect to remain here. So access to antiretroviral therapy was made chargeable for certain categories of people. You could get the treatment so long as you paid for it. Um, so trusts were instructed to, to charge and to bill patients who were not entitled. And there's another whole kind of controversy about what happens with that and reports of some trusts sending debt collectors after people who'd received antiretroviral therapy, you know, effectively kind of destitute people being pursued. Um, but also uh, quite a few reports of um, widespread discretion being exercised and people actually by default receiving ART effectively uh, for free and charges being levied but then being cancelled. Um, and it was left at the discretion of trusts whether to actually pursue people for these costs. So a kind of uh, kind of de facto creep, creep towards actually providing people with uh, access to treatment. Now this is also this issue is also being played out in uh, legal judgments where people were appealing against deportation from the UK. Uh, people who had failed claims for asylum um, had gone on to antiretroviral therapy, but then were being are deported as their uh, claims and appeals were um, resolved, making uh, appeals on the basis that they were now receiving antiretroviral therapy and they would be deported back to a country where treatment was no longer available. So does this constitute uh, grounds for an asylum claim? And this is tested out in the courts all the way up to the House of Lords, the European Court of Human Rights, um, in a number of kind of landmark cases. One of these is the case of D. Um, following this case, the Home Office had instructed claims officers that leave to re enter or remain in the UK had to be granted to people claiming asylum if there was credible medical evidence that the state of treatment in their own country was so uh, limited that they would be subject to acute physical and mental suffering if the UK could be regarded as having assumed responsibility. Okay, so if they'd come into the system, then they could... Um, remain in the UK to receive that treatment. This was substantially narrowed following the case of N at the Court of Appeal in 2003, which determined that this was no longer really grounds to remain in the UK, and that to succeed a claim would have to be considered truly exceptional. Um, and as this was uh, articulated in the judgment of the court, since millions of people are in the same position without access to treatment in countries outside the UK, that was by definition not an exceptional case. Um, so there's a play here, I think, on the idea that HIV is an exceptional <coughs> disease requiring an exceptional response. That, that idea has been a big part of HIV AIDS activism um, to argue that certain uh, kinds of provision, whether it's intellectual property rights, should be suspended, that you know, a special case should be made. This requires a dedicated response. But when this comes up against uh, immigration control and control of asylum, it seems to be asylum control that uh, being tough on asylum 
getting control of immigration seems to seems to trump the, uh, the the public health or the human rights arguments that have been articulated. Even though at the level of actual practice, there's a lot of kind of discretionary ways of um, trying to enable people to to access treatment. One indication that this is not a purely kind of juridical issue came in the individual judgments of the Lords in 2005, and this is just an extract from one of them who said in making his ruling he'd been influenced by the consideration that to allow the appeal would risk drawing into the United Kingdom large numbers of people already suffering from HIV in the hope that they could remain here indefinitely so that they could take, take advantage, take the benefit of medical resources available in this country. Um, the better course one might have thought would be for states to continue to concentrate their efforts on the steps which are currently being taken with the assistance of drug companies, kind of, um, to make the necessary medical care universally and freely available in the countries of the third world, um, which are still suffering so much from the relentless scourge of HIV AIDS. So this kind of trope of health tourism, the idea of being an asylum seeker in the UK is kind of attractive because you could get access to HIV. It's something that's been kind of severely questioned whether this, this is really a real phenomenon at all. And um, there's no convincing evidence has really been um, presented to, to substantiate that this is a, a serious problem on, on a meaningful level. But it remains a very kind of powerfully embedded uh, trope in the discourse. Okay, so just another couple of comments on this, this aspect of discretion. Uh, a report um, from an episode in 2008, New Year's Day 2008, when Martin Neri, head of the children's charity Bernardo, opened the letter he'd been waiting for. Inside were the names of 63 HIV-positive children and their families who had at last received a reprieve from the British government. They no longer faced deportation back to Malawi and Rwanda to an almost certain death. So again, these kind of specific cases being made for the um, immigration authorities, the Home Secretary, to exercise discretion to allow people um, to remain when they're not required to do so based on legal rulings that have been established. Okay, another indication of this contestation but also meshing of um, the response to HIV with immigration control uh, are these guidelines produced by the British HIV Association and the National AIDS Trust for what to do in the immigration removals process. So if people are going to be deported, they're entitled to um, care of an equivalent standard to that available in the NHS, uh, including access to uh, anti free antiretroviral therapy if, if they're actually going to be deported. So um, these guidelines and various charities and, and NGOs have pursue this question very actively of, of what happens to people living with HIV during the removals process and whether their care is interrupted. So these guidelines recommend that uh, continuity of care is ensured and that if people are deported they are given three months worth of antiretroviral drugs to take with them so that they can try to connect up with accessing treatment in the country that they are being um, deported to. So one point is that this um, introduces potential barriers actually to deportation. As the guidelines say, final judgment as to whether an HIV-positive detainee is medically stable and fit to travel must be determined on a case-by-case -case basis and should always rest with the IRCGP in consultation with HIV specialists. So this is another moment in the process where it, you know, deportation has become slightly contestable. 
Okay, so that kind of brings us close, closer to where the debate is at the moment. Um, if we take a look back again at the later health protection agency reports and uh, the, the ways these, these curves are developing, the, uh, the, the blue line there shows um, transmission by heterosexual contact abroad. Uh, and 2008, 2009, you see this crossing again with uh, transmission between men having sex with men. Uh, and this is kind of generally associated with UK-born, non-UK-born uh, populations. Uh, and the, pretty much the kind of disappearance of this issue uh, in terms of a reactionary press coverage and attempt to actually politicize what HIV means, what the epidemic means for, for Britain, um, for the welfare state, for, for, for public health and so on, from, from the, the right of the political spectrum, so to speak. So, in one sense, this, this is a, I think we can now kind of see this as something of a cycle, of, a, of an issue cycle, um, but also a shift in the, uh, the nature of the, 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 the epidemic in Britain. Okay, where things are starting to come back um, onto the agenda, what is something that's being articulated much more openly now that was somewhat suppressed I think during the debate that I've been talking about is the cost of responding to HIV in the UK. This is from a, a, a paper from 2010, um, which suggests that the cost of managing HIV in the UK is going to go over a billion dollars within a couple of years. And obviously, this is kind of coming back in terms of austerity, the austerity politics, how things are prioritised. Okay, so if I could just kind of make my three kind of concluding comments. Uh, well. Government health research, it's a cliche that, okay, we have Foucault's nice formulation of what government health is, but inevitably there are messy realities. The question is, what kind of mess? So there's maybe a, uh, again, very British kind of liberalism here about uh, bodging through a, a kind of solution and doing things despite political challenges and the, the nature of the medical political consensus around HIV AIDS. So in those government mentality lectures, Foucault suggests that uh, the tactics of governmentality, the, 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 the tools, the techniques for actually managing population start to define the terms of politics. And I think we can see this at stake in the response to epidemic in Britain where there are these kind of lurid fears of, which are kind of racially articulated and very biological, but also when it comes down to actually determining the policy, it's, it's arguments about cost effectiveness um, cost-benefit, sometimes very kind of technical uh, managerial questions that maybe seem to carry some of the debate rather than this somewhat sensationalist media uh, debate. So um, maybe we can talk about the, the end of the crisis as it was defined and framed and constructed, but certainly not the end of the, the epidemic. Uh, and for um, Foucault writing about the 18th century, it, 18th century governmental practice, he says that the general question basically will be how to keep a type of criminality or other problem within socially and economically acceptable limits and around an average that will be considered as optimal for a given social functioning. So it's not necessarily about eliminating problems, but by managing them in a way that doesn't interfere with other kinds of social processes and interests. So the, the uh, kind of relationship of the response to HIV then I think is coming back onto the agenda, but in terms of its relationship to good economic management. 
in this very managerial way. And I was just very struck in current House of Lords hearings and sessions on Britain's response to HIV. Um, the uh, comments of one representative of uh, an organization from the, the AIDS sector who described the response to AIDS as the first big society initiative, this now notorious idea of the conservative government that um, you can cut welfare, cut public health spending, and you know, the big society will spring up and manage this, has a very kind of ironic and ambiguous meaning in this context. Thank you. Thank you very much.